fellowship. I feel like we could just go home right now. That singing was so good, especially on this side. Team Tom Hallman, I mean, I, just particular affinity there, that battle. That's a good way to start a church service. I like that. Uh, speaking of battles, my son Jimmy is here with me, uh, so you guys can say hi to him. And uh, he was in an epic battle yesterday uh, in that uh, I, I come, I see you guys mostly once a year. I always come back here for uh, my annual rafting trip. I go with the Fosses. Uh, yesterday, despite many, many warnings to the contrary, Jimmy thought it would be a good idea to pull Alexis into the water against her will. So I made sure to separate them on both sides of the aisle there. I ask that you help me protect my son today from her wrath. I want to thank all of you guys for your part in uh, contributing financially and prayerfully to my ministry with Disciple Makers. Disciple Makers is, exists to raise up effective disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ on college campuses, and I am really uh, grateful for your partnership in that. I, in fact, wish I could just pick all of you up and, and drop you on campus so you could see the work that God is doing there uh, firsthand. That would be impractical. Uh, so what I figured I would do this morning is to share with you a message that I, I uh, gave uh, almost this exact message to the students last year. And so you can get a sense of, of what we're teaching and uh, just the, the excitement that they have to spread God's word and to give hope uh, on college campuses, which I probably don't want to tell you are, are relatively dark places. So um, I'm going to be preaching this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. And guys, Christianity has been around for two millennia now, okay? Uh, and while it has been, become increasingly unpopular, kind of out of style here in the West, it continues to thrive and multiply in, in many places around the, uh, around the globe. In fact, Christianity is currently growing at twice the population uh, growth in Asia, and it is projected that in sub-Saharan Africa, the number of Christians will double by 2050. That's truly incredible growth. God is at work around the world. And that growth is incredibly frustrating to those who believe that Christianity is false or unhealthy or otherwise opposed to their own preferred worldview. Well, should there be any such opponents joining us today, or perhaps listening to this at some future point, pay attention. Because if you want to completely eradicate biblical Christianity from the face of the earth, and to do so while heaping the most possible shame upon those who practice it, then you only need to do one thing, and that is to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then Christianity loses absolutely all of its power and influence. And in fact, the Bible itself will agree with you in that case that Christians are liars and that they are hopeless and that they are of all people most to be pitied. Now, that being said, it's also important to keep in mind that this blade cuts both ways. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, and that, it, that, that instead proves, it proves the authority and the truthfulness of all that Jesus said and did. 
And that means that every one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, has to reckon with that truth and its implications, which are both numerous and far-reaching. It speaks to things such as whether God exists and who he says he is. It speaks to the personhood of Jesus of Nazareth. It speaks to the reliability of Jesus' teachings and the Bible itself, whether miracles are possible and whether there are supernatural events that, that natural laws cannot explain, whether we are answerable to a divine authority, whether, whether we are God's friends or God's enemies, and even whether our lives today have any meaning whatsoever. So, for Christians and non-Christians alike, the issue of whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened is an absolutely huge question that, that we must contend with. And this morning, we're going to do just that. I only have a short time here, but we're going to move fast, and I'm going to try to answer four questions, all taken from one section of one letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Here are the questions, which I, I believe are in your bulletin. Did the resurrection happen? Why does the resurrection matter? What's the resurrection like? And how should this affect us today? Ready? Here we go. This is question one. Did the resurrection happen? We're going to jump right in uh, to, to near the end of this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which, by the way, was not a particularly healthy church. Okay? There was infighting, factions, immorality, lawsuits, and other pretty messed up stuff happening in that church. And one of those messed up things is that some of these church members were starting to deny that the resurrection was even possible at all. And, th and that's, to be really honest, frankly understandable. Because resurrection is not something we see every day. Or really, any day. I don't have any resurrected friends. You don't have any resurrected friends. And, and back in Corinth, they didn't have any resurrected friends either. So, so that makes resurrection hard to believe. And hard to believe things easily become unbelieved things. The next thing you know, you've got a bunch of Corinthians back then or college professors today who will say things like Christianity is fine without the resurrection. Just let that silly thing go and move on with your faith. To which the Apostle Paul says, no, no, it is, Christianity is absolutely not fine without the resurrection. So let me speak, or I'm sorry, let Paul speak for himself here. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. This is from the English Standard Version. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostle, all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul starts off by saying that he needs to remind this church of what they should already know, this thing called the gospel, a word which means good news. So what is this good news? Paul lays it out for us here in two points found in verses 3 and 4. First, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And second, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, now, if, if, you're, if you're new to Christianity here, I, I, I want to recognize that you probably don't understand like 80% of the words in those couple sentences there. That's understandable. So let me lay it out for you here. According to the Bible... Our perfect God created man and woman in his image. But then he gave them free will to choose to obey or disobey them as they saw fit. And it wasn't very long before they chose to disobey, which the Bible calls sin. And through that choice, all God's creation became corrupted everywhere, completely uh, allowing death to enter into the world and messing everything up. But worst of all, that man and that woman created a massive gap between them and God. And... And, and uh, so God, in his mercy, to restore that relationship, relationship sent his son Jesus 2,000 years ago to, to reconcile us between him and God, between sinful mankind and their sinless God. That was accomplished by Jesus being crucified on a Roman cross in our place 2,000 years ago, and three days after his burial, God raised him from the dead. And, and that... that that, that resurrection, that's what we in Christianity call the resurrection. That's the big resurrection. That's really, really important to us. So now, for all those who have by faith trusted in Jesus Christ as their king and as their savior, they are so united to him that he takes on our sinfulness and we take on all of his perfections. And he forgives all of our sin and we receive all the blessings of knowing God the Father. And we are likewise promised that we Two, one day will be raised from the dead just as he was. And once that happens, we will never die again. That's the good news. That's what Paul is is hammering on here. That's what Christians call the gospel. So So now, Paul, having reminded the Corinthians of the role that the resurrection plays in the gospel message, he goes to great lengths here to show that even though the audience may not have witnessed the resurrection personally... There are literally hundreds of people who did. And Paul lists these out as a challenge to his readers. He's saying, you don't think the resurrection happened? Fine. Go talk to these people. They were there. They're still alive. Just go ask them. And just look at the list of people Paul gives. In verse 5, Cephas, that's another name for Peter. Okay, That's Jesus' right-hand man, his bestie. Okay, He'd have known if it wasn't actually Jesus who is risen from the dead. You think? Okay, listen, my wife, Allie, is an identical twin. She's actually visiting her twin sister right now. And I can, despite their, their, their identical twinness, we love put, you know, pointing at pictures on our wall and saying, that's not Allie, and people are like, what? You know, like they can't tell. But I can tell. How do I tell? Because they love staring at her beautiful, beautiful face for the past 15 years. I know every little facet of who she is. And I can pick her out instantly from her sister. It's not hard. In the same way, P- 
Peter stared into the face of God himself in the form of Jesus day after day after day for three years, if Jesus wasn't the one resurrected, Peter would have known. That's why Paul calls him out right away. So you can toss out any of those ridiculous uh, uh, imposter theories out there. Like, oh, it was actually somebody else. He just looked a lot like Jesus. Yeah, right. Then verse 6 says there were 500 people at one time. Okay, listen. If someone were to, like, come in here into this room right now, they came up from the fellowship hall or something, and, and, and they said, guys, Elon Musk is down in the fellowship hall. We'd probably be like, is that some kind of joke? Did Tom plant that? Like, you know, what, what, that's crazy. But then, like, if, if a second person came up and said, no, seriously, guys, Elon Musk is in the fellowship hall, you, you'd probably be a little curious. Maybe, maybe you know, like somebody here would have just gotten up and been like, oh, I'll go check and see. That sounds a little weird. All right, but, like, by, if, if a third or fourth or fifth person came up and said, seriously, guys, come on down. Like, get autographs. Like, they're probably worth a lot of money. Like, just go, go, go. You know, like... Like every single one of you, except for maybe Michael, because he's on crutches, would run out of this room, and you would go see for yourself if it was true. What if 500 people came into this room and all said the same thing at the same time? Wouldn't you say, he's got to be there. It would be absolutely insane not to believe that. That's what Paul is saying here. There would be no doubt. Whatsoever. There should be no doubt whatsoever. Okay, so then there's James in verse 7. Jesus' own blood brother, who it's worth noting, plainly did not believe in Jesus when he began his ministry. What changed his mind? Well, how about someone coming back from the dead? That'll do it. Similarly, the resurrected Jesus even appeared to Paul himself. We learned back in the book of Acts that this guy was going around killing Christians and dragging their families off to prison. He did so much damage to the fledgling church that when he finally encountered the resurrected Jesus and talked with him and believed in him, the little church that had formed by that time was terrified of him and didn't want to let him in. And that's understandable because some of their families were in prison because of this guy. <laughs> and Paul agrees. That's why he declares here in verse 9 that he's the least of this band of missionaries and not even being worthy to be considered part of this whole Jesus movement thing. So my friends, did the resurrection happen? It absolutely did. And Paul is so confident of this that he gives a massive list of witnesses to speak with so that any doubters can go and find out for themselves. Go Corinth. Go ahead. You don't think it's happening? Just take a little trip here. You will find 500 people ready to testify. Now, before we move on to the second point, let me briefly mention two objections to the resurrection that I hear frequently. And in fact, I used to believe myself, okay? So I, I feel like I, can, I have authority to speak to both sides here. Number one, objection number one, maybe the resurrection is all made up and it's actually just this mass conspiracy propagated by Jesus' followers in order to secure power. To which I ask, what power? What power did, did they have? Nearly all of Jesus' original followers, followers were imprisoned or exiled or executed. And if they were trying to win power and respect, they did a pretty terrible job. Like, just read the New Testament. Like, Jesus' disciples were constantly made out to be a bunch of bungling, self-centered, faithless nobodies. 
Like, if, if the goal had been power, they did nearly everything completely backwards. These guys need to get a degree in marketing or something. Objection number two. Maybe, maybe, they wholeheartedly believed it, but they were deceived. They were just wrong. Is that possible? No. That makes no sense at all. Like, there were literally hundreds of witnesses over 12 different occasions in a variety of settings over a period of 40 days. He was seen by men and women, inside and outside, by small groups and large groups, walking and talking with him. Some people touched him, and others watched him eat real, actual food. And, and frankly, if this were all some kind of deception, why didn't the Jewish or Roman authorities, both of which hated Christianity, by the way, why didn't anybody from either of those enormous and powerful factions just go out there and find Jesus' body and parade it around the city? The Christians themselves said, if you can do that, we give up. <laughs> that would have shut this whole thing down immediately. We wouldn't be here. But they didn't do that because they couldn't. Because Jesus was truly resurrected. So now Paul turns to address those in the church who are saying that there is no resurrection. And pay attention, because despite what we've already covered, if you still believe that there is no resurrection, and you'd like to altogether destroy Christianity, here's where Paul will tell you how. Let me read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is pro proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. There it is, right there in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I'm wasting my time standing here and you're wasting your time sitting there. Stop coming to church, stop reading your Bible, stop praying, and definitely stop telling people that Jesus saved you. Because he didn't. Maybe he tried, I guess. But according to verse 17, if, Jesus, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That means you are not right with God. That means you are not forgiven. That means you are not his children and he is not your father. No, you are his enemies. You're at war. He, this, this, this God, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who spoke galaxies into existence and who, who, who moment by moment holds every molecule in its place and sovereignly causes the sun to rise and set every day, this God is opposed to you because in your sin, you are opposed to him. And after this two-second slice of life passes here on earth, you're going to die. And... And you're not going to enter his heaven where, where God would personally shelter you and love you and, and wipe away your tears forever. No. You, you're going to spend all eternity forever and ever and ever separated from him. And from all blessing and goodness and safety and peace, no one will wipe away your tears. They will only increase them. And you will be without any hope of ever 
of that changing ever, ever, ever. It'll never happen. That's your lot forever. And that is not only true for you, but for all those who have lived and died since the beginning of time and for all who will come after you now until the end of time. That is why Paul writes in verse 19 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because this is it, friends. This is as good as it gets. The best your life will ever, like, ever get is happening right now. Congratulations, you are the coronavirus generation. And it's only downhill from here. Do you see, friends, why Paul is so utterly shocked that people would think they gain something by rejecting the resurrection? Why do you think people do that? Maybe it's ignorance. Maybe they really don't think that it happened. Maybe that's why Paul lists all these people to talk to here. But honestly, I, I think for many people, and this is also uh, almost certainly true of the Corinthian church, it's not ignorance, but preference. They, they want this to be all there is. Because if we keep our eyes on this world, the right here, right now, then it allows us the luxury of doing whatever we want. We get to be in charge. We get to make the rules. We get to be God. And if you're familiar with the bigger picture of the Bible, you know that that's not at all a new idea. This desire to be God is what led Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. And look what it got them. They became, of all creatures, most to be pitied. Congratulations, guys. Do you really want to follow in their footsteps? But I think there's another reason that people reject the resurrection, too. I think it's because they imagine that life after the resurrection isn't going to be much different than their lives are right now, which, frankly, are mediocre at best. And maybe they'll be even worse off, because, you know, like, after the resurrection, we're just going to, like, sit around with harps on clouds and sing Gregorian chants or something, right? Like, that's, that's... that's honestly what I thought for a long time. Even after becoming a Christian, I just, that wasn't, some, somehow that idea was in my head and, and, and I just read that into the Bible whenever I read it. It's not true. Well, I'm very pleased to tell you it's not true. Let's see what Paul has to say about it here. Okay, we're going to jump ahead to verse 35 for the sake of time and I'm going to read through almost the end of the chapter. This is a lot to take in. Don't get lost in the details. We'll unpack it together afterwards. So starting at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of, or of, of some other grain. But, it, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, and star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And just jump a few verses here with me to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. 
but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the blinking, uh, uh, twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause there. Okay, I have an illustration here. Hold on. All right. <clears throat> I don't know if you can see that. That's an apple seed. Trust me, it's there if you can't see it. And, and guys, we all know that a tiny apple seed has within it the potential to become an enormous apple tree that bears sweet, juicy fruit year after year after year. This little guy, that's what he can do. But have you ever just stopped and considered how very strange that is? It's really very strange. If you were to carefully examine this little, this little brown seed here, you'd quickly determine that it has nearly nothing in common with its future form. Okay, like consider a full-grown apple tree. Close your eyes and picture one in your mind for a moment. Picture the thick brown wood and the sprawling branches or the hundreds of green leaves or the crunchy apples. But you can open your eyes again. Take this little guy. Could you heat your home with logs made from this? Could your children play in these branches? Could you sit in the shade of this and read a book? And yet, if we put this little guy in the ground and it ceases to be, all of those things and so much more become possible. Th that amazing multi-purpose tree is resurrected from the death of this tiny little seed. Now, can you imagine a bunch of seeds sitting around inside an apple one day? You know, and one of them says, you know, I bet when we die, we're going to, like, come back as better seeds. But, like, seeds with harps and sitting on clouds and singing Gregorian chant and stuff. Okay, yes, I admit that's a little bit of a ridiculous analogy. But it would be even more ridiculous on the part of the seed, wouldn't it? Like, seed would have no idea how glorious it is going to become after it dies. My friends, Paul here in this text says we are just like that. Did you ever, did you see how many times the word glory appears just in verses 40 through 43 alone? Seven times. Seven times in those few verses. Paul is simply blown away by it. And this is how he concludes, starting partway through verse, verse 40 through, uh, through verse 42. Listen, what is sown is perishable. What is raised, what is resurrected is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. My friends, in the resurrection, you are not going to be bored. Like, you're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to be dishonored or weak. You're not, you're not going to be this. You're going to be glorious. You, you're, and you are going to be as gloriously different from what this all looks like right now as this little seed is gloriously different from an apple tree. Okay, 
for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to skip ahead to verse 50 here. You, you probably noticed that Paul spends a good bit of time talking about the perishable and the imperishable. He uses those words again and again and again and again. Why does he do that? Why does that matter? Well, let me propose that Paul is trying to answer a question. It's all, about, it's all a question of who wins. Let me explain what I mean by that. Some of you here are sports fans, okay? And, and back before the pandemic and stuff, we used to have these things called sports teams, and they would play each other. You know, and, and, and every year, those sports teams would compete. And people come from hundreds of miles away in order to watch them do so. Very exciting. And they play game after game after game, and, and eventually, the very two best teams play each other. And after that game, one of those teams will go home knowing that they and they alone were the very best team in the world. And sometimes that best team was so good that they went the entire, the entire time, all those teams, all those games, they went undefeated. Whew. Man, like that's, that's glorious. Right? Like that team clearly has the power, and then they have the authority and the track record to declare that they and they alone are the undisputed champions. Now, in a sports context, while the venerable distinction of being undefeated is indeed glorious, everyone knows that such a record as that will only last for that season, or if that team is truly amazing, maybe a few seasons, right? Well, friends, there is something right now all around you that has a better track record than even the greatest sports team of all time. And that thing is death. Death has entered the, entered the scene, as we mentioned earlier, back in Genesis 3, and since that moment, it has never lost. Every person who has ever lived has eventually died or soon will. It doesn't matter how healthy they ate or how much they worked out. It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor or kind or nasty or wildly famous or altogether unknown. Every person dies because death never loses. Except once. And that was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so death's flawless record is ruined. It's ruined. And my friends, it is more than ruined. Because what Paul is saying here in this text is that at that last trumpet, in the twinkling of an eye, every person who has ever trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, whether dead for millennia or as alive as you and I are right now, every one of them will be raised imperishable. When that happens, this is verse 53, when this happens, those perishable, these perishable bodies that are susceptible to death and decay will put on the imperishable over which death will have absolutely no power whatsoever. These mortal bodies will become immortal and death will never be able to lift a finger against it. So, not only did Jesus deliver the first blow to death's perfect record, but because of Jesus and our unity in him, death will never win again. It's completely ruined. The most shame 
And it's such a complete and utter loss. So complete is that loss. We will sing songs of mockery over death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You got nothing. Yes, you may steal our lives, whether by old age or cancer or coronavirus or crucifixion. But you've been defanged. You may claim to have stolen the lives of our friends and our family, our parents, even our children, and we mourn them, for this is not how God intended the world to be. But for those who have trusted in Christ someday soon, those who are stolen, who have been stolen from us prematurely, will rise up and we will join them forever in this glorious song, O death, where is your sting? That's what the resurrection is like, friends. It is more glorious than we can even imagine. And because death is defeated, it will never end. Okay, last question. How should this affect us today? What does this all matter right now? Well, we began our time by observing that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we Christians are most to be pitied, right? But my friends, we've seen that Jesus has been raised. And so we, of all people, are most to be envied. But the thing is, we Christians also know that there's nothing inherently in us that is enviable. We're nothing special. We didn't do anything to earn this coming victory over death. But we, by grace, have trusted in the only one who did. Verse 57 says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is very, very important to recognize. Because for Christians, death's sting is removed. Yes, yes, unless Christ returns first, we will all still die. But because of Jesus, death is merely the gateway to victorious immortality. Now, if you're here this morning, or you're listening to this later, and, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then that victory is not yours. It belongs only to Jesus, and mercifully, to all of those who have trusted in him. But here's the good news. He's ready to receive you if you are ready to receive him. Listen, would, would any undefeated world championship team ever allow someone to join the team after that championship has already been won? No way! You don't get the ring, you don't get the trophy, that's not how this works, but that is exactly what Jesus does for us. And if you'd like to gain access into that victory, you just need to ask to join the team. And I would love to talk to you about how to do that this morning before you leave, if that's you. But first, let me speak briefly to those who are Christians here. Because Paul writes verse 58 specifically to you. He says this, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, there's like probably six sermons in that one verse alone. Uh, but let me encourage you here with just 
this, this, with, with Paul's final exhortation, let me give you just one application, and it's this. Don't give up. Don't give up. No matter what is weighing you down right now, whether that's children or your marriage, your singleness, your job, or your dreams, brothers and sisters, don't give up. Instead, be steadfast and immovable. Continue abounding in the work of the Lord, loving other people, telling them about Jesus, inviting them to join you here on Sunday mornings, reading your Bible, serving your neighbors however you can, honoring and praying for the authorities God has set over us, and so on. Why? Like, why do those things even when it feels like nothing's changing? Because in your victorious and risen Lord, Jesus Christ, we are assured your labor is not in vain. He has a purpose for you, friends. He has a purpose for all your labors for him. And those labors are not in vain. They will accomplish exactly what he intends, both now while you're mortal and one day very soon when you're not. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are the beneficiaries of a battle we didn't wage, of a war that we started and you completed. And God, we know that someday this war will end. And we pathetic little powerless seeds that no one expects anything from, you see differently. You see what we will become. You see the beginning and the end. You are the first and the last. And all of our hope, therefore, is in Christ who died for us. Thank you for the privilege of being part of this team, of being united in Christ by grace. Thank you sincerely, Lord, for this church and for the ways that they are exemplifying this and growing in this and calling others to this as well. Would you bless their ongoing efforts? We know it's not in vain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.